from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, Kevin. This is Gabrielle Kelly at The Washington Post. How are you? Hey there. It's Simon from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from Post. Have you got a second talk? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, April 16th. Today, what's next for Notre Dame? Conspiracy theories move to mainstream YouTube, and an enduring pop hit turned 20. All of these great cathedrals took centuries to build, and in many ways they were never finished. This is Philip Kennicott. He's the Post's senior art and architecture critic. I've been in Notre Dame many times, and at the time I got the news, I was in this little town of Siena in Italy, and you could hear people talking about Notre Dame and Paris. It was on the lips of everyone here, perhaps because there is another great cathedral here, and people live in the shadow of it, and they understand the way in which these buildings become a part of the monumental and the built and the symbolic landscape. There are many other great French cathedrals, but Notre Dame has in many ways been kind of the symbolic heart of French religious life. It really sits at the very center of Paris. It's on an island in the middle of the Seine, in the river. And that was kind of the the beginnings of Paris, historically. And when you think of Paris, sort of the glamorous Paris of the 19th century, it, it, it really sort of begins and surrounds Notre Dame. On Tuesday, firefighters assessed the damage caused by the massive fire at Notre Dame, a fire that they think was caused by construction work. Many of the cathedral's most famous pieces of art were saved. Some of them had been put in storage prior to renovations, and then others were saved by first responders. They formed a human chain to carry relics out of the cathedral, and they managed to rescue the crown of thorns believed to have been worn by Jesus on the cross. Still, a lot has been lost. The structure itself is mostly intact, along with the stained glass windows, but large sections of the high vaulted ceilings have burned away, and the cathedral's iconic spire has collapsed. Philip says that while the destruction of this spire was tragic, maybe it's a lesson for us to start viewing these buildings as works in progress, instead of these polished, permanent monuments. So a cathedral for for almost all of the last thousand years or more, like Notre Dame, has been in a constant state of change. And, and hopefully the, the damage done to Notre Dame by this fire will at some point be seen as just one more chapter in that history of, of tribulations and changes that affects all of these great old buildings. I feel like that was one of the things I was thinking about yesterday as I, as I was watching this fire, where oftentimes you'll visit a church or an old building or, or a cathedral, and you'll hear about some fire that happened 75 years ago or 200 years ago. And, you know, you'll have a, a tour guide saying, well, you know, this part was built after the fire of 1782 or whatever. And then it, it never occurred to me that, like, that could still happen now and that things could still change now because of a fire. I think there was, beginning in the 19th century, the notion that cathedrals changed somehow from kind of living places of worship into great works of art, and they reached a kind of finality. And so any change to them um, recently feels like a, a violation of the supposed authenticity of the building. 
I understand why that happens, because these are great works, and the kind of craftsmanship that went into building them, in many ways, isn't available to us these days, nor is the impulse to build buildings like this. But for most of their lives, in fact, they, they constantly change. And, you know, I was just in the, the crypt of the cathedral here in Siena, and not so long ago, in, in doing some work on the church, they discovered this entire cycle of frescoes that had been painted there in the 13th century and essentially forgotten about, you know, kind of buried over and built over. And we uncovered them. I think, ah, we've just discovered these works of art. But at the time, they were simply seen, I think, in some ways as obsolete or part of the old structure and a new structure arose around them and new paintings were made. Have there been other incidents in modern history of cathedrals or huge landmarks that have had to have been rebuilt because of a big fire like this? Well, it depends on your definition of recent history. I mean, yes, of course, but one of the most famous ones, of course, um, happens in the 17th century in London when the Great Fire burns much of London, including almost 90 of its churches, among them um, the old St. Paul's. And the new St. Paul's that we know uh, was, was built after that fire. If you go to Venice as a tourist, you may take a picture of the Campanile, this great brick tower that rises on the plaza by San Marco. That fell down in 1902 and was completely rebuilt. And I, I think for most tourists, um, they may not even realize that it's essentially a modern structure. So for Notre Dame, how do you think the rebuilding process is going to unfold? My guess is that there will be a certain amount of characteristically French debate about the building and about how they want to rebuild it and which one they want to rebuild and whether or not they put that spire back on, a, a spire that had been added after a couple of centuries of it having been missing. Um, and then I think they'll probably go about rebuilding it in a methodically and conscientiously, historically sensitive way. You know, we all saw this wooden metal spire toppling over on Monday, and it was really, it was really tragic to see. But you said that there could be a question of whether they would even rebuild the spire, or they might do something else? So the spire that we saw yesterday is a relatively late addition to the church. There had been a spire there for many centuries after the church was constructed, but it was in such bad repair by the mid to late 18th century that it was removed. The one that was added in the middle of the 19th century was created by this controversial, curious character in French history, Eugène Villers-le-Duc, who is responsible for preserving many of the great cultural treasures of France, but he also embellished them a little bit. Hmm. So that spire, um, which was made of wood and lead, and so burned very, very powerfully and very quickly, uh, <laughs> Maybe there are some reasons not to rebuild that. It, it was part of the profile of the church, and it's obviously part of the church that we know from postcards and visiting as a tourist. But there's an argument for Notre Dame without that spire as well. And so the French will have to decide which Notre Dame do they want to reconstruct. Do they want to rebuild the one that people knew during the Revolution and the age of Napoleon? Or do they want to rebuild the one that people knew when Paris was the city of light in the capital of the 19th century? What could a new Notre Dame look like? I wouldn't be surprised if there is some remnant of the fire retained as a kind of memorial. You know, there, there was a church in the German city of Lübeck that was bombed during the Second World War, St. Mary's. 
And in the fires that resulted from the bombing, the, the bells fell to the ground. And when the church was was repaired and reconstructed, they left the bells where they were, and they now form a memorial, and it's a very poignant one. Um, you walk in and you see this reminder of the destruction of the Second World War lying in front of you. So when you envision a future Notre Dame, do you see something like that, some kind of very clear vestige of, of this fire? I think it's likely that they will, and, and I kind of hope that they will, because in a way this— this moment is an important lesson that all of these buildings are vulnerable. And none of them can ever really be thought of as permanent. They're, they're subject to so many stresses and so many dangers. And I think having something that reminds people after the rebuilding of Notre Dame that it burned in 2019 would probably be um, both emotionally appropriate and, and a good intellectual exercise for people to, to remember. Philip Kennicott is the Post's senior art and architecture critic. Vous le dit ce soir avec force. Nous sommes ce peuple de bâtisseurs. In a national address late in the day on Tuesday, French President Emmanuel Macron said that he believes the Notre Dame Cathedral can be reconstructed within five years. He said, quote, we will rebuild the cathedral and make it even more beautiful. He is the most banned person in the 21st century. He's a right-wing conspiracy theorist and actually has been endorsed by Donald Trump, ladies and gentlemen. It's Alex Jones! It's good to be here, man. Alex Jones is a conspiracy theorist who is best known as sort of the head-slash-main face of InfoWars. Abby Olheiser covers internet culture for The Post. And last week, she tuned into the podcast Impulsive, where Alex Jones made a two-hour appearance. I like it. Very good vibe here. Alex Jones. Very nice. The show is hosted by YouTuber Logan Paul. He's an extremely popular vlogger, and he's best known for posting a controversial video to his YouTube channel that appeared to show a dead body in a Japanese forest. They're both controversial figures who are really, really, really good at using the internet to get attention for themselves and what they're selling. Alex Jones has been banned from YouTube and most major social media sites. He's also being sued by families of children killed in the Newtown shooting. So for Jones, appearing on Logan Paul's show was a way for him to spread his message to a new audience at a time when he's allowed on fewer and fewer platforms. He has made comments that are now the subject of a lawsuit promoting or hinting at or explicitly saying that Sandy Hook was either manipulated or didn't happen. He now says that he does not believe that anymore, but continues to say things on air questioning the narrative of Sandy Hook. So why would Logan Paul have Alex Jones on his podcast? Right. This is kind of one of the more surprising things, I feel like, for people who maybe don't spend as much time as I sadly do watching things on YouTube. You know, Alex Jones has an older audience. His audience is mainly people who are very engaged in a certain way of political and conspiratorial thinking. And Logan Paul is a essentially a kid's entertainer. 
they both sell products. Logan sells merchandise, so hoodies, leggings, sweatpants. And Alice Jones sells supplements, healthcare products. I think he sells coffee now. But what's interesting about this is that Alex Jones has actually been kicked off of social media platforms and YouTube. And the fact that he is allowed to appear on this super popular podcast by Logan Paul, it seems like it kind of bypasses all the other measures that have been taken to try to crack down on the harmful speech that Alex Jones puts out. It sort of shows how understanding of the culture of what happens on these platforms is just as important as understanding what these platforms can or can't do algorithmically or through their kind of disciplinary procedures to weed out bad actors on these platforms, right? And yet he is still finding audiences, not just on YouTube, but wherever Logan Paul's podcast is hosted, that now know who he is if they didn't before. They know where to find him and they know what he believes. And they are hearing these beliefs in a relatively unchallenged environment. This isn't even the first major podcast that Alex Jones has done. He was also on Joe Rogan's podcast a few weeks ago, which has an as big, if not bigger, audience. The difference being that Rogan's podcast appeals to people who maybe already knew what InfoWars was, at least, where Logan has such a young audience that this could be the very first time that some of his fans were exposed to him and his views. So what did he talk about on Logan Paul's podcast? Alex Jones had a great time on Logan Paul's podcast. What is it like being Alex Jones? It's awesome. He seemed to really be enjoying himself. And that's partially because he seemed to talk about anything he wanted. I haven't killed one kid, but I am the devil. They probably had a hundred major newspapers last week, cover stories saying, I'm the devil. I was bad to question Sandy Hook. I wasn't the original guy to question Sandy Hook. And then he said, you know, you go to the Japanese forest once, it turns, you know, it turns into your life. And that was clearly a moment where he was trying to relate to Logan and Logan's audience's understanding of this thing that had happened to him, that it had real consequences for Logan's career. So even while Alex Jones is being sued by the families of Sandy Hook victims and has been banned from most major platforms on the internet because of those kinds of views, just because he gets to go on somebody else's podcast, he basically gets around all of those bans and continues to be able to talk about these conspiracy theories and spread false information to a new audience. It is surreal in many ways to see Jones on Logan Paul's podcast, to see them talk for two hours, given the differences in their audiences. And yet, you know, the very first thing that Jones says to Logan about why he's there is that he knows Logan is super popular. This isn't accidental that Jones is finding himself getting these invitations. These are audiences that he is aware of and seeks out. And it feels like that speaks to this, like, tension here between the platforms themselves and the people who are super successful on these platforms, right? That, like, you can say that social media companies and YouTube and Facebook and stuff like that, that they're trying to be more accountable in terms of how information is shared, but that ultimately... The power lies in the hands of the people who are really popular on these platforms, and those people are not always responsible. Yeah, I mean, one of the more interesting things in general with YouTubers over the past few years is watching them reckon with the responsibilities that come with having these huge young audiences. There's a range of effectiveness and maturity with which people have handled this. Logan chose a certain path that has led him to this moment where he is now hosting 
a conspiracy theorist for two hours on a podcast when he knows he has an audience of young kids. Others have become much more concerned about encouraging their audience to continue school and things like that. Is there a risk here that by Logan Paul having Alex Jones on his podcast like this, that it will disseminate these false conspiracy theories to new audiences? Yeah, and this is something that some researchers, including uh, one named Rebecca Lewis, who has done a lot of work on YouTube in, in particular, have looked at, that it's not accidental when YouTubers who you might say are on the, quote, fringes, get audiences that belong to YouTubers that are much more mainstream. This is the boundaries there have been permeable for a long time. And the reason those boundaries are permeable is because the people who have more extreme views know that by gaining larger audiences, they have a chance of attracting some of that audience to their channel. There is this internet term for what's going on called red pilling, which more and more people have heard of over the past few years. Is this a, a reference to The Matrix? It is a reference to the scene in The Matrix. You take the blue pill, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. I think Jones seems to see himself as somebody who is very good at doing that. That's the touch point. Abby Olheiser reports on digital culture for The Post. And now, one more thing. The biggest hit from the Backstreet Boys turns 20 this month. I would be in the basement doing my homework and listening to the radio and hear I Want It That Way. And it quickly became one of my favorite songs. My name is Emily Yar. I write about entertainment for The Post. It had an amazing first verse. You are my fire, the one desire, I mean, poetry. Swedish style. I spoke to Andreas Carlson, who co-wrote the song along with Max Martin. It was goosebumps, even though it was very rough. He said, I want us to finish this song. I was like, okay, what should the second verse be? And we try to write different things, and we try to be clever and, and all this kind of stuff. And then eventually it was like, it, it doesn't sound as great as the first verse. It doesn't have the same memorable, you know, words. So eventually we just flipped it. So the second verse becomes, Am I your fire? Am I your fire? A question. And paired up with the chorus, which was, The song really, lyrically, didn't mean anything. It was just, couple of words that sounded very good together and with the music it, it just felt like magic. So they sent the song to the record company and they were positive that this was going to be the band's biggest hit. This is the big smash. This is the song that's going to take Backstreet Boys from being sort of a boy band to being something that everybody and their uncle is going to dance to and feel. The record company didn't think so. They liked the music and all, but they thought the lyrics made absolutely no sense. So they brought in producer Mutt Lang, Shania Twain's husband, to try and fix it. We wrote another lyric. It all made sense. 
the band re-record the song. It had similar sounds, but it just, it had no teeth. It didn't have the magic. I remember the opening was, no goodbyes. Meanwhile, we're sitting thinking, oh my God, this is not going to be the big hit that we envisioned because now it's starting to sound like a normal song. It doesn't have that weirdness about it. And it was actually the Backstreet Boys that said, if it's this version, we're out. We're not going to show up for performances. We're not going to sing this. It has to be the original version. And eventually the record company went with the nonsense lyric that is today sort of a, a template for how not to write a song. I always wanted to have my own Africa with Totos, a song that would be very special to people, you know, that people could have memories to, that would remind them about the certain time. From that guitar riff to sort of that mellow but a little bit haunting verse to the positive, you know, chorus that opens up like the sun is coming out. It just has a special feeling to it. When I hear the song now, I am just instantly transported to that era, you know, buying my first CD, going to my first concert, and it just is pure joy. Emily Yar is a pop culture writer for The Post. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories from today's show at postreports.com and share your thoughts about this episode by tagging me on Twitter at Martine Powers or using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. <laughs>